Thanks so much for listening to the Clifton Church of Christ sermon podcast. We really appreciate you taking the time to listen, and we hope if ever you're in Clifton, Texas, you'll stop by and say hello. We hope you enjoy this sermon. Okay. So, since you were a child, you have been taught these are the ground rules and the expectations of whatever place you are, okay? At your house, this is how things are going to go. At my house, no dogs are going to be on the bed, okay? At my house, there's not going to be any jumping on the furniture. At your house, you do what you want. If you, if Landry Joe and Marshall, when their friends come over to spend the night someday, and they jump on my couch, Catherine's couch, <laughs> let's be honest, they jump on Catherine's couch, uh, and I say, get down, you know, stop, and they go, well, at my house I can jump on the couch, does it matter? I'll say, nope. This is our house, okay? You're not going to jump on the couch. Um, at preschool, at daycare, at grandma's house, at school, wherever you are, there are, this is where you are, this is the expectation. Here are the things that are going to be rewarded, here are the things that are going to be uh, consequences, rules, regulations, and guess what? This doesn't stop. As you get older, whenever you're an adult, the rules and reg- regulations only become more intense, right? They only become more higher consequences. This is how you act. This is how you live. This is a very, very simple way for me to try and describe the idea that in any place where you are, you are a member or a resident or a citizen of that place. And there are expectations for how you're going to live and act. We have these unspoken and spoken rules about this is what we need to do and can't do. This is what you should do. This is what you shouldn't do. And as all of us are perfectly aware... More and more, living here in our country, the idea of this is what you should and shouldn't do is becoming more and more confusing to a lot of us. Correct? Nod your head if you're with me. Okay? I know many of you probably feel like there was a time where, in your opinion, it was like, yeah, I feel like the expectations of how we should act in my home looked similar to how I was supposed to act out in the community. But now... Depending on where you live, depending on different circumstances, that's becoming less clear to me and less obvious. So today we are going to finally talk about, I think, one of the topics that is uh, probably one of the most pressing things on any of us, our minds, day to day, which is, if Christ is my Lord, if I have really decided to surrender my life to Christ and live under His Lordship, that means that He is also Lord of my citizenship. I am someone who has not really done a lot of preaching about politics, and I plan on this not being a lot of preaching about politics. But you got to admit, it's going to come up today, okay? We're talking about the Lord of our citizenship. But I have a good out. You ready for this? If you listen to my sermon today and you are not happy with it, or it's really tough for you, there are two possibilities. One, I did a bad job, and I'm wrong. Okay, I am fully prepared. I think I have a pretty high degree of being willing to say I'm wrong about something. If you think I'm wrong, come to Wednesday night class. Tell me I'm wrong and let's talk about it. Okay. The other possibility is, if this is a tough, frustrating sermon for you, there's a chance that you haven't really given up your citizenship to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. See what I did there? It's a brilliant move. Now, if you're frustrated with me, you're like, oh man, if I tell Drew I'm frustrated, I'm admitting that maybe I haven't done this too good. But I think we've seen through this whole series, every single topic, if Christ is my Lord, then he should be Lord of my family, of my 
work of my every single thing, there are going to be different lessons that are harder for us than others, and that's probably a sign that we have not fully surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus in that area. So I have, let's see, I believe I have four main things with a lot of Bible verses. And so the first of our four main things, if you're a note taker, is how do I live under the Lordship of Jesus Christ as a citizen? How do I be a good citizen in my country? Well, the first thing is, be a good citizen in your country. In Romans, we've got this great message from Paul. I'm using the message translation because sometimes we all admit Paul can be a bit confusing and the message sometimes does a really good job of just talking in layman's terms. So here we go. Romans 13, 1-7. Paul says, Be a good citizen. All governments are under God. This is Paul talking to people in Rome living under the lordship of Caesar. And he says, All governments are under God. Insofar as they are, there is peace and order, it's God's order. So live responsibly as a citizen. If you're irresponsible to the state, then you're irresponsible with God. And God will hold you responsible. Duly constituted authorities are only a threat if you're trying to get by with something. The tax office is only something you should fear if you know you're not doing your taxes like you're supposed to. Decent citizens should have nothing to fear. Do you want to be on good terms with the government? Be a responsible citizen and you'll get on just fine. The government working to your advantage. But if you're breaking the rules right and left, watch out. The police aren't there just to be admired in their uniforms. God also has an interest in keeping order. We talked about this a few sermons ago. When God created the world, He brought order out of chaos. He calls for us as our vocation to be people that bring order and fill the earth with good good fruits, just like a gardener brings order to the garden. Okay. And He uses them to do it. That's why you must live responsibly, not just to avoid punishment, but also because it's the right way to live. That's also why you pay taxes. I had a friend I was talking about to this sermon with, and he said, a lot of my Christian friends love the part where it says, follow the law. They don't like the pay your taxes part of this, but they're both in there. So that an orderly way of life can be maintained. Fulfill your obligations as a citizen. Pay your taxes, pay your bills, respect your leaders. Thank you, Paul. Moving on to Titus 3, 1 through 2. Remind the people to respect the government and be law-abiding, always ready to lend a helping hand. No insults, no fights. God's people should be big-hearted and courteous. No insults, no fights. God's people should be big-hearted and courteous. When we think about the way Christians interact with each other nowadays, does that sound like a good description of it when political matters are being talked about? No. For the sake of brevity and simplicity, I just want you to know, we could find more verses, but there is a theme in Scripture from Paul that is to say, hey, Christians, excuse my language, don't be a pain in the butt. Okay? Because this is what was going on in the New Testament. You ready? In the New Testament, people believed in these cities, the city is going to do well if all of us worship all the gods. And we've got this little annoying group of people that we call Christians or followers of the way, or most people just call them Jews. We've got this really annoying little group that they're not doing all the God worshiping that's supposed to happen. And so every time there's a famine or there's no rain, Everyone starts to go, well, it's because those dang Christians aren't going to the temple and worshiping Apollo. And they're not worshiping Hermes. And they're not worshiping all these 
They, they're the reason why all this is happening in our society. And so Paul is kind of going, guys, we already have a bad rap. We already have people who are like, those Christians are annoying and they're the worst and they're ruining everything. They don't come to any of our gladiator parties. They don't come to any of our, you know, big blowouts where we all get plastered. And if they would and they would just get involved, like this would be better. And so Paul is saying, we've got this reputation and we got to just get that out of here. The way we're going to have a good reputation in our city that we're living in, in our society, is by being people who are just kind and not insulting and not picking fights. We're paying our bills. As Jesus would say, we're given to Caesar what is Caesar's. We are just, just be a good citizen, okay? So the first part about Christ's lordship is something that's a little tricky because everything written in the New Testament was when the Christian church was this percentage of the population. Now we live in a time where it is this percentage of the population. But, as you and I all know, it is becoming more like this. To some people's chagrin and to other people's celebration. Because the church probably was always meant to be a group that was a minority. But I, that's a whole other Wednesday night class. Come and talk about that. But the point is, when we are the ones in power and we think we move all the pieces, we lose sight of, wait a second, this all started as a group of people where Paul's saying, you are not in power. You are the annoying ones. Try not to be. Try to be loving. Try to be law-abiding. Try to be good people so that all these neighbors, whenever one of them goes, you know what, I bet it hasn't rained here in 20 days because that Christian, that other people go, no, 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 don't say that. That lady is the nicest lady in this neighborhood. You can't talk about her like that. She is so nice to me. When my kid was sick, she brought food to me all the time. Whenever we were doing this and that, she was there at the neighborhood cleanup day the whole time. Yeah, don't talk about her like that. She's not the problem because they're being good citizens. Okay, the second thing is to be an ambassador of the kingdom. In 2 Corinthians, Paul gives us this great line, this wording, where he says, be an ambassador. All of you probably know what an ambassador is. An ambassador is someone who is a resident of one country, but lives where? In another country. Okay? Now, I'm, I'm, gonna tr- I'm not like really big on, I don't have a ton of info on ambassador, how it all works. But let's imagine that there's a French ambassador that's living in Germany. Okay? Their heart, soul, and mind, they're French, right? They celebrate French holidays, right? They are probably very a big fan of French food. They like ratatouille, okay? But at the same time, they probably also are trying to do their best to be a good neighbor to the Germans that are there, right? They're probably going to Munich for, in October, okay? They're probably having a lot of great bratwurst and sauerkraut. They're doing their best to be an ambassador there. So part of this illustration, if you want me to say, well, Drew, where do we draw the line? Where do we end the being a Frenchman and become too much of a German? How do we... I don't know the answer. But the point is, there's something of both of them in the word ambassador. But the key to the ambassador is the idea that that ambassador knows, I am going to be respectful to Germany. I'm going to be doing what I can. But this is not my primary allegiance and loyalty. My primary allegiance and my primary loyalty is to my home country. So what is our home country? Let's read from Philippians 3. 
Philippians 3, starting in verse 17. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. He's saying, I'm telling you this, it breaks my heart. But there are so many people out there that do not want to see the cross of Christ to be lifted high, to be exalted, to be praised, to be worshipped, to be told that is the truth. There's so many people that are against that. Those people who feel that way, their destiny is destruction. Their God is their gut, is their own, this is what I think we should do. This is what I think is right. Adam and Eve, when they took from the fruit, it was for them to decide the knowledge of good and evil, to decide for themselves, for their own gut, their own stomach, what's right and what's wrong. And he's saying, that's their, these people's problems. Their glory and their shame is in their shame. They think, I'm my own God. That glory that they have in themselves, it's going to be their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, is in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the heavens. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables Him to bring everything under His control. If you don't think God's going to be able to figure out a way to control all of this, He knows how to bring all things unto Himself. He will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like His glorious body. I'm going to use one more illustration because we talked about it in class last week. When we interviewed the Brinleys, Katie Brinley used the word, I, am, I grew up a third culture kid. And if you were in class, you remembered I kind of paused because she said that like everyone knew what a third culture kid was. And I thought, I don't think they all know what that is. So we paused. And she said, well, that's a term we use for missionary families to say that if your parents are from America and they move to another country for the sake of the Brindley's, just, let's just say Turkey, you're living in Turkey. The idea is a third culture kid is that person is not really an American. They don't really know everything about, oh, this is what we do here in America. They're not drinking this water. And they're over here in Turkey living in this culture, but really their parents are teaching them English. They're going on sabbaticals back and forth to America. They're not really Turkish either because they're not from Turkey either. And so they are this third thing, this third culture. Maybe that's a good illustration for how we should be thinking about our citizenship. Are we... American? Everyone in this room is. Are we supposed to live in this country and be good residents of this country? Yes. We just got done talking about that. But we also are residents and citizens of our true country, the kingdom. We're citizens of a place where the rules of this area, even though maybe some of you felt like for a lot of your life the rules of the kingdom of heaven and the rules of our country were pretty much aligned, they're not now, even if you ever felt that way. And so we're going to have to balance that. And we're almost going to have to be these people that are this third option, which I would like to call exiles. (laughs) Because we're not at home in either place. If ever you're like, man, I'm right at home here in America. Christ isn't the Lord of your life. And if you're like, oh man, well, someday you will be right at home at the kingdom of heaven. It's just not here yet. And so we are in this third option. Okay? The third point. What do we do, and this is kind of something I've already been hinting at, what do we do when our country we live in is at odds with our kingdom citizenship? I'm going to use those, I'm going to say country of residence and our kingdom citizenship or allegiance. What do we do when our kingdom allegiance and our country allegiance are at odds with each other? 
We've been talking about it all week at VBS. We left the decorations up, so it's going to be perfect for this illustration. But this has been the, the memory verse all week for the kids, has been this pass- passage from Ephesians 6. If you, you probably didn't hear Marshall when I brought him in from going to the restroom. He looked at our hallway. If you haven't gone and seen the decorations, I encourage you to go. But he looked at the doors and he said, good kingdom, bad kingdom. Because there's the white side of the door and the black side of the door. One is this kingdom that we is full of darkness and full of brokenness. And we have all these banners that hang that say, like, you're not loved. This is the kingdom of this world. And then we have this other kingdom of light. And Marshall, if he got one thing from it, he got good kingdom, bad kingdom, okay? But what we've been trying to say to the students is, whether you see it or not, there is a war going on for our hearts. And one we would call the kingdom of light, the forces of good, of God, spiritual forces of God. And then we've got this kingdom of darkness, the spiritual forces of evil. And they are at war with each other. And one of the key things that I want to say very clearly, if ever you find yourself looking at a human being on your television screen and thinking, that person is the enemy, you haven't read Ephesians 6. Because Ephesians 6 says, our battle is not against what? Flesh and blood. But against the powers of darkness. Ephesians, John, and Revelation has no problem saying when you see brokenness and corruption in your government or in anything, it is the forces of darkness at work animating the lives of the people there. The people aren't our battle. Our battle are the forces of darkness. So let's read. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist and the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So the question that I ask, when our country allegiance and our kingdom allegiance don't line up, what do we do? And what Paul would say is, you get geared up for war. But what kind of gear do we wear? Our gear is not the belt of anger. Our gear is not the breastplate of being really mean on Facebook. Our gear is not the readiness to snap at anybody and everybody that I think disagrees with me. Our sword is not go get them. Our sword, our armor is truth, righteousness, salvation, faith, peace. So whenever you log on to Facebook in 2024 when the election comes around, are you going to gear up for battle? Yes, you better. But are you going to gear up to be rude and angry and mean? You've missed it. You've put on the armor of the enemy and not the armor of our kingdom. And since we're a part of our true kingdom allegiance, we wear that armor. We live like that, okay? There is a a book that I read recently by John Mark Comer, and he references a book by a guy named Dr. Larry Hurtado, who is, what a name. Uh, 
history. He is a historian of early Christianity, and he wrote a book called The Destroyer of Gods. And in this book, he tells a story of how this small Jewish group was able to overthrow the gods of the Roman Empire. How did they do it? How were this small little minority group able to do this huge thing where a world that was dominated by paganism and still is dominated by paganism, was able to, in some ways, kind of baptize itself into Jesus at some level. And he says, his thesis is, it wasn't because the church got really relevant, and it wasn't because the church got really relatable, but it's because it had a difference. It had distinctives that made it compelling. Now, he lists five distinctives of the church. If you don't agree with these, I understand. But if you read them, I feel like they sound like Jesus to me. You ready? Five distinctives of the early church. You ready for these? First, this was a group of people committed to multiracial, multi-ethnic community that valued diversity. Second, had an incredibly high value of caring for poor people, especially at the expense of their rich members. Had a big care for this. The third one, a very staunch resistance to, to killing babies. Okay? There's, in the book, they talk about, there's all sorts of places where archaeologists will do digs around the Roman world, and they will find a building that is littered with babies' bones. And they're like, oh, this is the place where it was appropriate if you didn't want another child, if you didn't want to have this little daughter, this is where you brought them and you left them. And guess what the church did? The church was known for going to those places and getting those babies, okay? So a distinctive of the church was, we don't do that to babies. Number four, a resolute vision that marriage and sexuality is between one man and one woman. And that you don't just, like we talked about in Bible class in Ephesus, in Ephesus, the temple of Aphrodite, the crazier, the more, the however, the better. And the Christians were like, that's not how we're designed. We're designed, God made us for this. And then the fifth thing is an incredibly resolute desire for non-violence. We are going to be a group of people who are not going to be violent. Those are the five things. Now, Drew, why are you bringing up those five things? Well, this is why I brought them up. Because in my opinion, none of those five things fit, or not none of those, all of those five things do not fit in either of our political parties. There are things that I just said in these five that for the Democrats in the audience, you thought, amen. We should care about multiracial. We should care about the poor. And there might have been some of these things that the Republicans in the group said, amen. We should care about marriage between a man and a woman. We should care about... All I'm telling you is, is that if you think your political party gets all of those distinctives exactly right, you're kidding yourself. Okay? Now, I'm not up here telling you who to vote for, but what I'm telling you is you should not feel like your political party is, oh, well, we get everything that Jesus has to do right. And that one gets it all wrong. Because typically, stereotypically, there are people who are, I'll just, I'll just say it, stereotypically, Republicans care more about the baby in the womb than they care about the baby that's living on the street. Democrats care more about the baby on the street than the baby in the womb. Neither one is right, because guess what? Jesus is pro-life. And so he cares about the baby in the womb, and he cares about the baby on the street. And if you're like, well, oh, what, what, I don't know about all those policies to help all those poor people that aren't helping themselves. You know, they should, they should pull themselves up. Jesus cared about the baby in the womb and the baby on the street because he's pro-life. 
So what do we do? It goes back to what I said. We are exiles in our political system. When Christ is the Lord of our citizenship, we are never going to be at home in either of the groups. Or if you're like, I'm libertarian, I don't know what they think, but I don't think it's all five of these things, okay? All right? By the way, I'm saying that mostly because I'm kind of an idiot when it comes to political stuff. I don't really know anything. But what I do know is there's plenty of things where I hear that and people go, can you believe that? And I go, well, that sounds kind of like Jesus, but okay. And then the other side goes, can you believe that? And I go, well, that kind of sounds like Jesus. And by the way, I don't know if Republicans or Democrats like the nonviolent part. You know, I don't know if there's either party that's up for that. So I want to be someone who is careful that when I immerse myself in my favorite news station and my favorite echo chamber of Facebook, I am going to have to notice, is the way I view this political thing because I have been immersed in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or is it because I've been immersed in my favorite news station and social media? Which one is running my life? Which one is the Lord of my citizenship? Something we all have to ask ourselves. The last one is this. Can our kingdom citizenship influence our country of residence? Hey, Drew, when you're talking about all this, is, there, is it okay if I kind of want my Jesus kingdom of heaven to pour out into my country? Absolutely. Jesus says all the time, God, we pray that your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Okay? So I have an analogy that I'll use for this. I hope it makes the point. But I've been reading through a book by Jonathan Eig called King. And it's a biography about Martin Luther King Jr. I've really been enjoying it. And as I've been reading, it's evident that you have this man, Martin Luther King Jr., who is living in a country, America, that is living outside of God's desire because there are people that are saying things like, you know, it's better for whites and blacks to just not be together. That's not Jesus. Okay? There are people that are saying, you know, if we let the blacks into all of our schools and into all of our stuff, it's just going to water down this good thing we've got going in America. That's not Jesus. I, I've had, I don't think they mean it this way, but I've had family members say before, man, I just missed the 50s. And you know what I think? Black people don't. Does that make sense? There was a time where for him to be a Christian and for him to be an American was incredibly difficult to balance those things. And sadly, a lot of his brothers who were ministers in the South, white brothers, weren't helping very much because they had a lot of churches that would fire them if they said anything about it. Or they legitimately just believed black people were subhuman. Okay, And so you have Martin Luther King who... Uh, if it had been any other leader that had risen to the top, like Martin Luther King, if it had been any other leader, I just want you to imagine, as, as I've been reading this book, all I can think about is, I'm so glad it was Martin Luther King Jr. because of his resolute desire to say, I am a Christian and we are not going to change anything with violence. The amount of bloodshed that he could have unleashed on the world is incredible. There's early in his early in the, the, what he was doing, uh, there was a person that threw a bomb on their front porch, his family's front porch. And he came out and he was surrounded by his black neighbors holding pitchforks and weapons. Uh, the pitchforks is a joke, but like holding weapons, ready for him to say, unleash us on these people. And this is what he said. He said, we believe in law and order. Don't get your weapons. We are not advocating violence. 
We want to love our enemies. I want you to love our enemies. Be good to them. Love them and let them know you love them. I want it to be the length. I want I want it to be known the length and breadth across the length and breadth of this land that if I am stopped, this movement will not be stopped. If I am stopped, our work will not stop for what we are doing is right and what we are doing is just. Aren't you glad Martin Luther King Jr. believed in Jesus Christ? That that's what he said? Because guess what? There was another person living around them named Malcolm X who across the country, this is what he said in response to Martin Luther King Jr. No more turning the other cheek. Does that sound like Jesus? There will be nonviolent. This is his words. There will be nonviolence with those who are not violent with us. How many of us in our politics have come to the place where we have said, listen, I'm not going to be violent with those people unless they're violent with me. I think it happens all the time. I think there's so many people, whatever side of the aisle that you're on, it's like, listen, I'll be, I'm not going to be violent to you unless you're violent to me. That is not Jesus. That's the message of the other kingdom, okay? Not to, not to, anyway. That's the message of the other kingdom. And so, I'm very grateful that whenever Martin Luther King Jr. was in charge, he was consistently, now, don't get me wrong, read the book, he was not a perfect person. But thankfully, he kept coming back all the time to saying, this movement will not last at all. It will do nothing, ever, if we don't lead with love. It's just going to die. This is the only way that it's going to make it. So here's my summary. Sorry this was long. Here's my summary. Five things. Be a good citizen. Do what you can not to make people think we are mean jerks. And when they think of Christians, they're like, oh yeah, I know what a Christian is. They're a jerk. Don't be that person. Pay your taxes. Follow the laws. Keep order. Bring life. Number two, be an ambassador of our true home, the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom of the heavens. Number three, our allegiance is first and foremost to him. So if ever you find yourself going, well, my allegiance to America and my allegiance, or wherever you're living, if you're living, if any of you move to Brazil, my allegiance to my country and my allegiance to God are at odds, we will know which one is your true allegiance by which one you decide. There's no question about it. If you think my allegiance to Jesus is compelling me to do this, my allegiance to my country is compelling me to do this, and they're at odds, I'll know which one is the Lord of your life based on which one you pick. Okay, number four. As a part of that, we will never feel fully at home in our country of origin ever again. We will always be exiles. We will never 100% say, oh, I'm right at home until the day comes when Christ makes all things new. Number five. We can create change, especially when my kingdom citizenship demands that we try to bring life. Martin Luther King Jr., it's a a theme throughout the book. He wants to quit and become a professor at a college throughout. He's like, I wish I could just quit and just be a professor, but I can't because I have been called by God to say, this is evil, and my faith in Jesus says we've got to change this, okay? So that's why he kept going. Even in the midst of death threats, even in the midst of he was arrested 29 times during the course of this whole thing, even the risk and all of that, I got to keep going. We do not use the weapons of the enemy, but in the change, we only use the weapons of truth, faith, peace, righteousness, love, and the Spirit. And in that way, we will actually be able to make a change. If you ever find yourself using the other weapons, you might see some big change, but it's never going to be Jesus' change, and it's never going to be long-term. So, four times in Ephesians it says, stand firm. It says it over and over. So now I challenge you, when you don't think you can speak love anymore to that person, 
stand firm. When you, don't, when you don't know how much more you can take, stand firm. When you feel like all you do is try to be a force for Christ and change your community and it's not helping and it's all in vain, stand firm. When you are trying to be an ambassador of your true home and your true kingdom, stand firm. Because if the Lord, if Christ is the Lord of our citizenship, He is faithful and He is going to see us through until the day comes when all of us are at home in our true country, the kingdom of the heavens. If any of you would like to learn more about Jesus and what it means for Him to be our Lord, I'd encourage you to come while we stand and sing this song.